Several months ago, when um, I first had the opportunity to, to share, I introduced a series of teachings from the book of Acts, which is one of my favorite books to, to teach from. But that series I, was, I called Ministry Principles from the Book of Acts. And if you were here those quite a few months ago, we started in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, which I think is a verse that is very fundamental uh, to the church because it, tells to, it shows to me, it tells me the, the things, the main things that a church should be focusing on. It says there that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayer. And I believe, I, I truly believe that every healthy church um, should be engaged in, in those four things. Um, we followed on with um, a look at Acts chapter 4 and where ministry uh, begins. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it reads, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And you know, that verse has always spoken to me because to me it speaks of where fruitful ministry begins. Oftentimes we love to jump into ministry for the Lord but not having spent time with the Lord. And we, we looked at that verse along with John chapter uh, 21 to just to bring illustration to that concept of how important it is for us to be with Jesus if we want to be fruitful in our service for Jesus. We went on and we looked in Acts chapter 3 at the, at the story of Peter and John going to the temple and being confronted with a lame man that they didn't have the money to help him with, with. But we saw that they did help in the way that they could help. They helped him with his physical need. And through the miracle and the testimony of this man, many people were saved. And again, I always look at that passage. There are many ways that you can look at that passage. But a simple way is that Peter very straightforwardly comes forth and says, I don't have what you're looking for, but I do have something that I can give you. And I believe that we all have something that we can give. We can't give what we don't have, but we can give what we do have. And we know that God has given us, by his grace, spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12, verse 6 says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Romans 12, 6. As Christians, we all have something that we can give. We all have something that this world needs. We can't focus on what we don't have, but we can focus on what we do have. Give what we can give. And so that brings us to tonight. And what I want to look at tonight is our, our focus, our focus in ministry, our focus in life. How do we keep focused on what God has called us to do. We were having, a, every Tuesday night, we have a, a meeting with the men here, some of the men in one of the Bible studies. And, and the topic came up, just how do we stay as Christians effective in doing what God has called us to do and not get sidetracked? 
And I was, that, that really hit home to me, being someone that's recently been transplanted back here to the States, spent 14 years in full-time ministry in, in Africa, where I found that, you know, the need is so great, and there are so many ways that you can just delve in. It was very easy to keep yourself focused on the task. And I come back here to America, and I find it's much more difficult. There are so many more things that can distract us away from ministry. And I was just thinking about the fact that I've been in ministry for 19 years now, and I've realized, you know, it's very difficult to not be sidetracked. It's not just sidetracked by the world. Certainly the world can divert us, can tempt us, can distract us. But we can be sidetracked by service. We can be sidetracked even in Christian service from doing the thing that that God has called us to do. And so I'm going to show you a little video, and I, it's a story that I know you've heard. I know Pastor Rob has preached it, but every time I see this, it really speaks to me of a great priority that we should never uh, become sidetracked from. So let's see if this will play. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With little to no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money and effort to support the work. New boats were brought in and new crews were trained. And the little life-saving station grew. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they began to use it sort of as a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decor, and there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners. The beautiful new club was in chaos. Immediately, the property committee hired someone to rig up a shower outside the club, where victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. The outsiders made the life-saving station extremely dirty. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt that they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. But a small number of members insisted upon life-saving as their primary mission and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. After all, the dissenting group's members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. 
It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was found. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that eastern seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters. But most of the passengers drown. I'm sure you've uh, had the opportunity to see that before, or at least heard the message before. And it doesn't need any explanation, does it? It's really referring to, to the church. And the church's primary priority to save lives. And, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. How do we keep the church? How do we keep ourselves focused on what God has called us to do? And I realize that when you're talking about the church and we're talking about ourselves, we're not necessarily talking about the exact same thing. But in general, the church has a focus that we shouldn't divert from. And, and we ourselves, as Christians, as we know our Lord, as we know the giftings and the talents that he's given us, we also should have a focus and a purpose in this life that he's given us. And how do we do that? And we come to the title of my message, which is by keeping the main thing the main thing. And so we're going to look at what the main thing is tonight. And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I'll read. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying... There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, sorry, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the to the faith. How do we keep ourselves and the church on track by keeping the main thing the main thing? Let's look at, we'll just kind of just track right through this passage and learn what the Lord has for us this evening. Beginning at chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, we see there that the church was growing. The church was multiplying. What had been happening? Well, we know if we, if we trace back in the book of Acts, if you go back into the Acts chapter 2, we know that God's Spirit had come upon the church. Pentecost, God's Spirit came down, filled the disciples. They went out speaking in tongues. They were speaking in dialects that people from the, around the world who had come to Jerusalem to worship God we're now hearing the praise of God in their, own, in their own tongue. What had been prophesied in the book of Joel, chapter 2, 
verse 28, where it says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. God's Holy Spirit was upon the church and people took notice. I remember recently we were doing, um, uh, recollecting uh, the, as we were going through the Calvary Chapel distinctives, we were looking at a video called Ventures of Faith. And it was so encouraging to see the history of the, the Calvary Chapel movement, just pulling our movement out. I know God has done great things in many movements, but particularly in the 70s, what God did through Pastor Chuck, through Calvary Chapel, was an amazing thing. And certainly, you, could, you couldn't attribute it to a man. It was, it was the Holy Spirit of God supernaturally poured out upon that, in that time and in that generation. And thousands, thousands of people were just coming to the Lord. A beautiful thing, a wonderful encouragement. And it reminded me of the fact that, you know, that whole hippie generation that was then was a generation that the people, the Christian church, didn't know how to reach. And yet God intervened. God sent or poured out his spirit. And it was his spirit through channels like Pastor Chuck that reached thousands of these people. And you know, we're, we're in a similar situation now. We have generations that we don't necessarily understand how to reach as a church. The, the uh, millennials and Gen Z, these are generations of people coming up that as the traditional older church, we're like, how do, do we reach this generation? And simply, the answer is we, need, we certainly need God's Holy Spirit. But not only that, we see that God's grace was being poured out through the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that when after Pentecost, uh, Peter preached, and over 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. In chapter 3, Peter healed a lame man and immediately preached a sermon, and 2,000 more people were, were, he, were uh, added to the church. In chapters 2 and 3 and 4, we see miracles being done. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, and it says, With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The grace of the Lord Jesus was upon the apostles, and they were channels of God's grace to the people who were so thirsty for the truth of the Word of God, the truth of of Christ Jesus. Not only that, we see that the church itself was doing, it was concerned, it was doing what it was supposed to be doing. They were following the pattern of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which I referenced earlier. They were in the Word. They were in fellowship. They were praying together. They were breaking bread together. And what we see in the following verses is a beautiful result of what God can and wants to do through the church. These believers, having received the love of God, were loving God in return and were loving the people around. And the result was a wonderful community where people were looking out for the needs of each other those who had needs were being taken care of. And the result was this tremendous, this beautiful community of sharing and caring for each other. 
And we see that um, the church was growing, but the church was also under attack. Again, when you look at chapter 4, we see the account of how Peter is uh, brought before the the leaders. He's put in prison. Um, We see how Satan was trying to disrupt the inward peace of the holy of the church by attacking from the outside persecuting and discouraging the apostles and we see how in chapter 5 we see how satan tried to subvert the church from the inside introducing sin you know the story of ananias and sapphira introducing the sin of lying and hypocrisy amongst its members and now in chapter 6 we are seeing satan still at work trying to divide the church and distract the church from doing what it is supposed to be doing. So continuing on, it says, Now in those days when when the number of of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. You know, again, think of all the good that is going on in this church And we always need to realize that where God is doing a good work, Satan is always going to be there to try to thwart it, to try to tear it down. And here he goes again. He did it. He tried in chapter 4, he tried in chapter 5, and here he is in chapter 6 again trying to bring division into the church. What happens? Well, into this growing church, people start complaining. There was a program within the church to care for the widows. Now, this was something that had been brought into the church from Old Testament practice. God, in his law, had instructed that God's people should care for the orphan, the, orphan, the fatherless, and the widow. And so that, that principle was adopted immediately as part of what the church should also be doing. But as a, an aside... This was interesting to me as a, as a pastor in Africa because I remember going to Africa and with the zeal to preach the Word of God, like the Word of God is what people need to hear. And I was averse to going and starting all kinds of other things because I felt like the Word of God is the most important thing. But I remember not too long after starting the church in the community where we were in, I would have preached a sermon and I would have lines of people, mostly women, lining up. And I would think in my pride, wow, what a great sermon I did. All these people want prayer. They were so touched. But as I got to pray with them, I realized they just had needs. They needed money. They needed school fees. They needed finances. And so I came to realize that the physical need was actually a barrier to them hearing the the spiritual need that they truly have. So there is a place for these kinds of ministries within within the church, obviously, and we see that in Acts chapter 4. I remember God used, I mean Acts chapter 2. God used that passage to show me that when a church is, folk, is based in the foundational things of the word of God and prayer and breaking of bread and fellowship, that automatically other kinds of ministries will grow out of it. Schools, widows help programs, help for 
uh, disadvantaged people. Those will come as God touches the heart of people within the church to reach out in love. But it's important that these things are the fruit of the church and not the heart of the church. In other words, the heart of a healthy church should never be the program. The heart of the healthy church should always be the Word of God and the loving and prayerful fellowshipping of the believers around the Word. But in any case, back to what we see in this passage, we see that this early church had already started a program to help the widows. And some of the widows started complaining. Well, how did it start? Well, when we go back, we, we recognize that in the early church, there were Jews of, of different origins. There were pure Jews, pure Hebrews, who were born in Israel and maintained the language and culture and customs of being a Jew. But there were also Jews who had long ago dispersed to other countries and had adopted the Greek language and even the culture and the customs of the Greeks. These were called the Hellenists or the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews. And in, in, many, in, in many respects, they were more Greek than Jew. But they considered Jerusalem to be their holy city, and so they made the annual pilgrimage uh, to pray, to celebrate at the various feasts. And so when Peter started preaching at Pentecost, both Hebrew Jews and Hellenistic Jews became converted. And you could say that two cultures, even two tribes, were combined to form the church. And we all know that tribal and racial differences can cause division within the church. I remember, where, again, using an example from where we were. You know, you often think uh, people would ask, oh, do you speak African? Um, well, in the country where we lived, Uganda, there were actually 52 different dialects, over 30 different tribes of people. And so while to an outsider they might all appear to look to the same, they themselves knew each other very well. Um, they could tell by their face, their, obviously their speech, exactly what tribe they were from. And I came to understand that while in general, as a Ugandan, they might stick up for each other, when push came to shove, they would always, always, always pull or stick with their tribe, even if it meant doing something wrong. Tribal loyalty was so strong. Um, and so in a way, we see that this was happening, this tribal loyalty was happening in the church. Uh, the Hellenistic Jews started complaining that the Hebrew Jews were overlooking their widows when it came to the food uh, distribution. And we can say this was discrimination. It was favoritism. It was being shown to those who were to a certain portion of the church, and, and as a result, they were complaining. And obviously it led to resentment, it led to hard feelings, it led to, and it could have easily led to a church uh, split. I think of this, and I think of the early church, and I think here 
the Lord was doing such a wonderful thing in the church. And they had already gone through the issue with Ananias and Sapphira, and they had already gone through the imprisonment with Peter. But here we have, again, the devil doing his job of trying to bring division. A good thing is happening, and Satan is turning it into something that will split the church or, in, or something that will take the apostles away from the task that they're supposed to do. You know, was it right that those distributing the food were showing favoritism? And you'd say no. Was it right that the widows were complaining? Well, probably not either. But how did the apostles respond to this crisis? We go on. It says in verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, and they said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Let's just take the first part of that verse. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples. I love how they, the apostles give us the example of just di- directly dealing with the problem. They don't ignore it. They don't get angry and frustrated over it. They don't diminish it. They don't hope it goes away. It says there that they summon the multitude of the congregation, the whole congregation. When you read on in, in that passage, in that verse, you can, you can infer that there were cries from the people that they wanted the apostles to oversee the distribution of food. You can imagine them saying, Peter, we want you, we want John to distribute the food. We know you won't be biased. You won't show favoritism. And you know what? That, that might have seemed like a, a sensible alternative. In fact, you can even imagine Peter and the other apostles being tempted to just step in and take care of the job themselves. These people can't handle it. They're, they're racist. They're tribal. We'll do the job ourselves. And if we, if we do it, we know it will be done right. And they could bring in the example of Jesus. After all, Jesus told us to wash one another's feet and he washed our feet, so why shouldn't we do this? But notice that that's not how Peter and John responded. They said, it is not right that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. It is not right that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. I remember as a minister, reading that once as a young minister, thinking, that's odd. That sounds like Peter and John just don't want to get dirty. (laughs) That sounds like they're kind of prideful. You can imagine people saying, you know, Jesus put a towel around his waist and washed your feet. Shouldn't you be willing to to step down and serve the widows? Peter, are you too important to do a lowly task? And you could imagine that that might have been the response. I'm, first reading of this passage for me, I remember thinking something like that. How is it that a minister is above doing something as, as lowly as serving? But I came to understand that this is not a question of willingness. 
I'm absolutely sure that Peter and the others were very willing to do the task. But it is a question of priorities and God's calling on our life. And this brings us to kind of the whole topic that we're talking about tonight. How do we keep ourselves in the will that God has for us, doing the task that God has for us? Back to Peter. Peter was very willing, and it wasn't a question of priorities. It's a question of God's call on his life. He says there that um, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. In other words, Peter realized he had a greater priority. His priority was to teach the word of God. His priority was to pray. Anything that would take them away from that priority would be wrong for Peter. Peter and the other realized that if they, they, they realized that if they busied themselves with the task of serving the widows, they would have had no time to do their other tasks, teaching, preaching, praying, counseling. And if they busied themselves with waiting tables, they would have dried up spiritually under the pressure and of the workload. And I would think even further, if, if they did the job themselves, they would deprive someone else the opportunity of serving and operating in the giftings that God had given them to do. You know, this brings it back to ourselves. We're all called to be servants. Paul references that in the book of Corinthians. We're bond servants. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. But being a servant does not always mean stepping in to help where help is needed. Now, I say that carefully because I would never turn away anyone who came to the church and said, I want to help. So I need to be careful about that. But I do know that most everyone is very busy. For those of us in ministry, it's hard to balance the the idea that we are called to be servants in ministry, and at the same time, the idea that sometimes we have to say no to certain things because we have something else that God has called us to do. And when you say no, people look at you cross-eyed, like, are you too prideful? Are you too big to do that task? And so we end up, by way of guilt or shame, doing something that we know we really should be doing something else. But for all of us, maybe you're not in ministry, maybe you're not in full-time ministry, um, we can be so overcome with the myriad of good things that there are to do, but they aren't necessarily the good things that we are supposed to do. Amen? Does that make sense? I find it's very hard. I find that living here in America, there is so many opportunities to do good things. And I could literally spend all my time doing good things. And my wife is always telling me, because I'm always ready to jump in and, yeah, I'll do that, to pray, to make sure that you're not just busying yourself doing good things, but you're not actually busy doing the good thing that God has for you to do. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he created beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Pastor Rob referenced that on Sunday. I believe that, yeah, there are good works that we should be involved in, but there is a good work that God has created for us, for you, to walk in. And we need to be careful that we're not just just wasting our time trying to do everything and not really being, not really focusing on what it is that God has for us. What was the apostle's solution? Going to verse 3, he says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, whom we may appoint over this business. He begins verse 3, he says, Therefore, seek for yourself seven men. And he goes on to list the qualifications. I love this because I can imagine Peter in that situation just saying, ah, it's just serving tables, just find someone. Anyone will do. He didn't say that. He said, seek seven men uh, from among you. In other words, they were members of the congregation. They were of good reputation. In other words, they were well-known You wouldn't want to have a person like Barabbas uh, giving food out to the widows. (laughs) They were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You know, those of you who, who have been involved in ministry to people who are homeless or disadvantaged people or people in poverty know how how difficult it is to to do that ministry. There are you. You just come to the end of yourself so quickly, and you need the Holy Spirit. You need wisdom. You need to have that ability that Peter said to the the lame man, I don't have the money that you're looking for, but what I do have, I give you. And be happy with that, being content with that. Um, He says, who can take responsibility. In other words, Peter didn't want to give it to people who he wouldn't be able to trust for them just to continue to take it forward. He didn't want to give it to people who would immediately give it back to him. He wanted people who could take responsibility. I remember, again, a story from starting the church. And I remember the mistake, after the fact, the mistake I made in appointing people to be deacons and elders in the church who didn't had no business of being deacons and elders in the church. And it's, it was so wonderful to be able to give people that, that role. They were so happy to receive it. But in my youngness in ministry, I realized afterwards I made some serious mistakes and it caused so much trouble within the church. And so it truly is important, these qualifications that we see here of having a good reputation, being full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, being people that can take responsibility. These are truly the requirements that are, that are needed for those who want to serve in the church. Not necessarily requirements in a worldly sense, but qualifications in a spiritual sense. And I would just encourage you who are here and, and you're thinking, well, I'd love to serve at the church. This is a great kind of uh, barometer or a measuring stick. Do I have these qualifications in my life? Because these are the kinds of men and women that are needed within the church uh, to serve. Um, he goes on in chapter 6, verse 4. He says, but we will give ourselves 
continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What Peter says here is is that we will continue to focus on our priority, prayer and God's word. I don't think that Peter was being lazy. I don't think he was shirking responsibility or being prideful in the least. Everything I read in, in the character of Peter, Peter would have been absolutely willing to do anything. But what he is being, being is faithful to the task that God had called him to be. Faithful to the calling to make disciples. And I had a note here. I, I said, for those who are in ministry or desire to be in ministry, and especially for those of us who are called to be pastors, these words should sound as a loudspeaker to where our priority must be and what the priority of the church, where the priority of the church must remain. Prayer and the word of God. A pastor is a shepherd, an an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. And a pastor as a pastor is diligently following, listening, speaking, receiving direction from the great shepherd, he can, he can lead diligently. But the moment a pastor neglects the all-important time in prayer and the word, he can be quickly led off track. And speaking as one who is in the pulpit for, for 14 years, I, I know how easy it is for tasks and uh, projects and every other kind of thing to take away time from word and prayer. But we see here that as they delegate the responsibility to those capable servants, they are discipling people and they're allowing spiritual leaders to grow. Maybe you're not in ministry tonight, but do you know your priority in life? You know, Peter and John understood their priority. It was to lead the church, and they realized to lead the church, they needed to be in prayer. They needed to be in the Word. And even doing a task like serving widows daily was too much. It would have taken away necessary time that they needed to to pray and to, to be in the Word. Maybe you're not in ministry, but I think in, an, in another sense, we all should know what our priority is. I think that the video that I showed earlier certainly gives a priority that all Christians should embrace. A priority is to be lifesavers, to be those who are bringing people to salvation, Jesus Christ. As a church, a priority should be to be a life-changing, a life-saving station. But do you know your priority? And I think to know your priority, it really means do you know your gifting, the spiritual giftings that God has given you. Acts chapter, I mean Ephesians chapter 4, we have the five-fold ministry, apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, and teachers. Primarily the, the giftings, the ministerial giftings. But then if you turn to Romans chapter 12, a whole other list of, of spiritual giftings. And then if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, more spiritual giftings. And I think that God's priority for our life will very much revolve around the spiritual giftings that God has gift, 
gifted us in this life. But how do we come to know what those giftings are? I believe that sometimes they are very clear, but sometimes they come as we serve. You know, as we say, you know what, I want to serve in a church. And you start doing a task, whether it's ushering, whether it's teaching Sunday school. Um, Around the church, you come to know, wow, I'm really good at that. God's really gifted me in that area. And then once you come to know your spiritual giftings, you come to understand more of what God's priority for your life is. I pray that that would be something, if you walk away with anything tonight, that that question would resonate in your mind. God, what is, my, what is your priority for my life? It's got to be a lot more than just having a job and making it through life. It's got to be a lot more than just someone who comes to church two times a week and schedules um, uh, you know, various meetings. with. A, th- there's got to be more. And I, I believe that God has a priority for each of us. But it comes as we seek him. It comes as we understand the giftings that God has given us. And it comes as we're open um, to the directing of the Lord in our life. Moving on, we're, we're getting close to the end here. In verses 5 and 6, And the saying pleased the multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. I love this passage because who they chose is, is very telling. We see in that list that there were six Greek men and one Gentile man. We can tell by their last name, their names, that they were Greek. And so we see that here was, here was the need. Here was the Hellenistic Jews. The Greek Jews were having a problem because they thought that the Hebrew Jews were overlooking them, were, were, being, were showing favoritism. And so what did they do? They chose Greeks themselves. Seven men who would be sensitive to the needs of the Greek-speaking Jews. Again, this verse really ministered to me as a missionary because I realized that, you know what, God had called me to be a missionary. But I realized that the most effective missionary to the Ugandan people would ultimately be one who lived there, who knew their language and culture and was much more sensitive to their needs than I would ever be able to be. They would be able to minister and serve the people of Uganda far better than I could. And so I remember there came that realization at some point in time where I realized, you know what, my time is coming to an end. I really need to turn this over because the ministry is plateauing. It really needs to be run by a local leadership. I remember reading Hudson Taylor, and he often compared missionaries to scaffolding on a building, how scaffolding is necessary as the building is going up. But at some point, in order to appreciate the beauty of the building, the scaffolding needs to be taken away. The scaffolding doesn't just continue to stay on there. It would make the building ugly. And I, I really saw that principle um, for missionary service in there. They chose Greek Jews to minister to the Greek widows. Um, the next slide. Let me see here. Um, 
it says the seven men were the, the first deacons, so to speak, in the Bible. Um, we, I don't know that this church has uh, properly titled deacons. I know that some Calvary chapels do. Um, but the word deacon, this is where it originates. The word distribution there and the word servant there in verse 2 are both from the Greek word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. And deacon simply means a servant. And so these seven servants served the church and made it possible for the, the, the apostles to carry out their ministry. They served the body. As deacons, their responsibility in the church is typically, typically to serve in the capacity of carrying out the practical duties in the church. You know, I think that in this church, there are so many deacons who really do so much, but they're not called deacons. You know, we have ushers, we have people taking care of the parking lot, we have people taking care of the cafe, we have people in the prayer ministry. All of these people are really in the capacity of carrying out practical duties in the church that enable Pastor Rob and the other pastors to carry out the ministry effectively. If you want to look at the qualifications of a deacon, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. But we see there in verse 6 that they commissioned them. Verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Again, the importance of doing, of praying and commissioning, even for a simple job. You know, sometimes we think that teaching up here is important, but teaching children isn't so important. But obviously the apostles thought that serving widows was very important, and they they laid hands on them. They commissioned them for that task. How important it is when we enter into Christian service that we're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we're not just doing it because it's a good thing to do or we're not just doing it in our own strength. How important it is to bring the Holy Spirit in and that he's the one that's empowering our service. Um, we see here that uh, a lot of, several of these men would go on and would become great in the book of Acts. Um, I think of uh, Stephen and Philip. Both of them, we know that Stephen was the first martyr. We know that Philip um, was used to convert the Ethiopian eunuch. He would go on to bring uh, a revival to, Caesarea, uh, to um, Samaria. He would go to Caesarea. He would have daughters who were prophetesses. So he, he lived a very fruitful life. But it all started doing this simple service early in the church. Don't despise the day of small beginnings in Christian service. As a pastor overseas, so many people would come and say, Pastor, I want to serve, I want to do this. But unless you allowed them to be on the pulpit or in front or singing, they typically disappeared very quickly. <laughs> they, didn't want to, they didn't want to do janitorial work. They didn't want to cut the grass. They didn't want to serve in any obscure capacity. They wanted to be front and center. And it's so important, those years of, of prep preparation... I believe that these were years of preparation for Stephen, for Philip, for these other deacons here that 
they were faithful in the small service, and God would then take them on to be uh, more, give them greater capacity in other services. God used this time to prepare them to be some of the most uh, influential figures in the book of Acts. And lastly, the word of God spread, the result. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Again, we look at this, look at this situation. A, a something that seemed simple, a complaint. But that complaint could have done two things. It could have split the church, and it could have taken the apostles away from doing what they were supposed to do. But because they responded in wisdom, because they knew what their priorities were, because they knew what God had called them to do, they were able to respond in a right way. And they appointed men filled with the Holy Spirit, with wisdom, with understanding to do that job, and they continued doing what they were supposed to do. And so we see, and ultimately, it says the word of God spread. In other words, the church wasn't hindered. In, in fact, not only wasn't it not hindered, but it, it grew. Somehow getting the Greek deacons in there ministering to the Hellenists, to the, to the Greek widows, even helped things go better than before. And um, it says that many priests and religious leaders among the Jews became converts. Somehow um, God used the testimony of what happened to even reach out to the Jewish to the Jewish community. Keeping the main thing, the main thing. I think Satan is always trying to disarm and to distract the church. I think he smiles when he manages to ignite a spark of murmuring or complaining in the church, and he laughs when the spark turns into a roaring fire of gossip or anger or division, I think there's nothing more that, that Satan enjoys than to see a church fighting. Why? Because a complaining church is a powerless church. It will have no witness. It will have no effect in pointing people to Jesus so lives can be transformed. But Satan also su succeeds in distracting the church, getting the church busy with lots of programs, lots of good deeds, at the expense of time in prayer and time in the Word. And why does he distract the church? So that the church dries up. Because without the Word of God, without fellowship, without prayer, people lose the power, the motivation, the reason for serving. They'll be giving, but they won't be receiving, and they will soon become discouraged and bitter and disillusioned. And they'll give up. And so what, what, what do we need to do? We need to keep the main thing, the main thing. God's word and prayer are the main things in our Christian life. And the main thing in the church and the main thing that the church should be focused on. And when we do keep the main thing, the main thing, there will be other fruit. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Now, that, that message 
speaks directly to those of us in ministry. But I believe it also speaks to all of us as Christians. Because I know so many Christians who are, who are running around almost in a harried way, so busy in doing so many good things. But you look at them and you feel like something's missing. And I believe it's, it's because they've gotten distracted. They've gotten diverted. They don't know necessarily what the priority of God is for their life. And that's not an easy thing to come to because certainly there are all kinds of pressures, all kinds of opportunities to serve the Lord. And sometimes we feel bad when we say no. And sometimes we end up doing a whole lot of things, not because it's something God has called us to do, but simply because of guilt or compulsion or shame. But I think it's so important for us to understand, God, what is, what is my priority? What is, what is your priority for my life? And when we understand that, when we understand what God's priority for our life is, we can have the same kind of answer that Peter and John had when they were presented with that situation. You know, it's not good for us to get involved in that. We, we're going to continue to do this, but let's delegate some people to do that. What a wise answer. And I think we would do well in our lives if we knew what God's purpose for our life was, or we knew better what God's purpose for our life was, and feel good about doing that and realize that in doing that, it may necessarily keep us from doing something else that is also good, but it's just not what God has for us. Amen? I pray that um, that speaks to you. It spoke to me because I have a hard time with that. <laughs> Coming back here, I see that there's so many good things to be involved in. And being in a church with so many wonderful people, you want to be involved with everyone. But I've just realized it's so important for us to know, God, amidst all the good things that are, that are there to do, what are the good things that you want me to do? What are the giftings that I have that you've given me 